Welcome to the Brave Church Podcast. We are honored you've chosen to listen and pray you're blessed by this talk. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit bravechurch.org. Wow, that was awesome. Thank you. I need to take you on the road. That'd be good. Hey, it is so great to be here, and I first of all got to say that those moves on the screen were good. Like, I'm a little nervous about trying to replicate them, but if it happens during the teaching, I might, you know? So, hey, I want to tell you that uh, Pastor Darren and and Tracy have just been uh, great leaders uh, themselves. The ministry they have, you talk about uh, everywhere they go, they have uh, grace. And my wife attended a uh, session at a Thrive Conference, I don't know if it was the same one, heard Pastor Darren teach, and came home and told me all about this guy, Darren, and I said, I don't want to hear about some other guy, I just want you to talk about me. So anyway, um, and what's uh, just awesome to me is the way that this church is a miracle in progress, and uh, your life is a miracle in progress, and uh, I don't know where you're coming from in terms of spiritual life, but I want you to know it's not an accident that you're here today. This is a good thing that you're here today. You got some teaching notes, and that represents the accumulation of all my years of wisdom. There they are right there. The title is right. Who knows what the heck's going to go in there, but uh, in just a moment, you'll have a chance to use that. I'm not here to pitch Jessup whatsoever, but I want to tell you nine quick things, three sets of three. Okay, nine quick things, three sets of three. This is what I tell people all the time about why Jessup and what we want to do. First of all, we want people to thrive spiritually. And for us, what that's all about is that college should be a time where your faith gets built up rather than torn down. So we want people to thrive spiritually. Second thing is quality liberal arts education. We think if you go to school, you should learn to read, write, think, and speak well, or else you should get a refund. Now, the lawyers won't let me put that in writing, but that's our goal, is that you'll get a quality liberal arts education. Then the third thing in that uh, first arena is exceptionally employable. This is what I think. I think that uh, a season of learning should be followed by a lifetime of earning, and that there's a moment where your kids and grandkids get off the parental dole. Anybody in favor of that? Okay. So I think by the time you graduate from college, you should get a job and be able to have a a future and that sort of thing. And so uh, those are kind of three core values. Let me give you three non-negotiables. First of all, we're Christ-centered. And I love that about Brave Church, that it's it's just about Jesus. That's what this church is about. It's about Jesus. If you get confused about different kinds of churches, Brave Church is bravely about Jesus. So I love that. Uh, Second thing is that we're very relational. See, I think everything in life uh, rises and falls on leadership and organizations, but everything in leadership rises and falls on relationships. So we're all about relationships. And then third thing, we're all about transformation. The fact is, is that we are where we are, but we want to grow to be where we can be. And so that process of transformation and change is the second part of who we are. Third thing uh, about us that I want you to hear is that um, we are also about three aspirations. The first one is we want to be highly ranked. So you probably heard of Stanford. Stanford okay here? Is that all right? Okay. Okay, so we like Stanford. That's a great school. So we ultimately want to be highly ranked, and I'm happy to say to you that William Jessup University's food was ranked 13th in the nation. Dead serious. I mean, you go to a college and go like, yeah, I want the food. But our food was ranked 13th in the nation. I don't know how they ranked this. I don't know how, who got number 12 and who got number 14. But we were ranked 13th in the nation. We're going to celebrate that. We're on the way to being highly ranked in a number of different areas. We're excited about that. And starting with food. Food's important. You know? Yeah, okay, good. So uh, we want to be highly ranked. But here's the second thing. We want to be broadly accessible. 
How many of you agree that not everybody has their act totally together and it's not just the A students who deserve a shot at life? And so at Jessup, we work really hard. We have a learning commons, support systems, try to help everybody uh, on the college journey. And then the uh, third thing is that we want to be financially independent. We know ultimately good stewardship and, and being faithful with what God has given us as part of our aspirational goal. So uh, anyway... Regularly at Jessup, we will challenge students. We have chapel a couple times a week, and at Jessup, we'll challenge people to be world changers, and we'll challenge people that they can be water walkers, and they can be giant slayers, and we'll give them big, huge dreams about their life. And about a year ago, I began to be very troubled by that message. And I don't know if this ever happens to you, but once in a while, I'll like read the newspaper, or I'll watch the news, and I'll think of these big, huge global issues. Like Brexit wasn't even in your vocabulary a few months ago, but it's like dominating the news. But then the truth is, like you got to go to the store and get milk, juice, and eggs, right? So it, the grand, big, huge stuff in life comes down to the very practical realities of life. And so I started thinking about that and praying about that, and I finally came up with something that I wanted to say to our students, which was to stop trying to change the world. Because if you're a college student... And maybe if you're a churchgoer, you sit in a room like this and people talk about grand themes. They talk about it. We can, you know, we can change the whole world. And it, it occurs to me that sometimes our focus gets so out there that we miss the reality of what needs to happen in here. So I've been saying to a lot of people lately, stop trying to change the world. Let Jesus change you first. And so I want to kind of camp on that this morning and share lots of aspects of it that I think will be encouraging to you. Because here's what I think. I think God does care about the world, but I also think he cares about your world. And your world that starts in here and your world that's in the confines of your apartment or house or your street or your workplace or your family. I think God cares about like all of that and he cares about all of that. He cares about both the big, huge world and he cares about your everyday world. So if we could just pray for a moment, I'm just going to pray God will touch your heart today. God, thanks for being in this place. Man, I so thank you for Darren and Tracy, and thank you for their, their bravery. Man, just their guts to come here and, and say, we want to start a church. And I just thank you for the story of this place. Thank you for the miracle that's in the making. And God, I'm going to believe in the next few moments that your hand, that your spirit will stir us up, will encourage us, will help us be the men and women you've called us to be. And God, wherever we are, some of us are kind of on the outside looking in, going, I'm not sure what I think about this God, Jesus, and church stuff. Others of us have been in this a long time, and we're just kind of wanting something fresh, and we want to know what you have to say for us today. God, wherever we are on the continuum, uh, whether we're just right there with you or whether we're a long ways away, I just pray that you would talk to us now, that we could hear your voice, that you speak to us at our point. Wherever we are on the, on the continuum, wherever we are in the process, that you would speak to us. And I just thank you, God, that... People were brave enough to come and establish a place like this so that we could be together and we could hear you. We just ask all this in your name. Amen. So uh, one of the things I, I really want to talk about is that there's a new paradigm that's been happening in my mind, and um, that'll be the next slide. It's talking about the fact that, that we're not at home anymore. We're not in Jerusalem uh, Jerusalem was a Bible language for when people felt comfortable, when they felt like they were 
right there in the, in the place where you can you know, kind of shorthand, like every once in a while my wife and her sister will be talking and uh, her sister's daughters, my nieces, uh, and I will look and we'll watch at the two sisters, the two adult girls talking to each other and we'll just go like, whatever, that, that's not, whatever they're saying is not English. What they do is they leave words out of sentences, they, they talk about memories and then they pivot on the memory. That, and by the way, I'm the same with my brother. You just get to talking really fast with somebody that you're really familiar with. Have you ever done that? Where like you have common experience you have shared memories and backgrounds and you can just kind of shorthand conversations. Well, that's what happens when you're at home. Maybe you have a family gathering. You just start moving and telling those old stories and people who are outsiders listening in go like, I don't understand exactly what they're talking about. It's because they don't have that shared experience and shared memory. So in Bible language, Jerusalem would be home and Corinth and Ephesus would be somewhere that's a different place and a scary place. And I think for a lot of us who want to be people of faith, it's increasingly feeling like the world that we're in is not Jerusalem anymore. Like if you want to have faith, it almost feels like you have to swim upstream in a culture that's going downstream. I don't know if you ever felt that, but sometimes like when you go to work or when you're talking in your neighborhood even, the fact that you would be here on a Sunday morning is a little freaky to some of your neighbors, right? Like your neighbors are looking at you going like, what are you doing today? You're doing what? You're going to church? And, and for some of you, it would go just a few short months ago, the idea that you'd spend an hour and a half of your life on a Sunday morning in a building like this and facing forward and people would be playing music and talking, you'd be talking to strangers, that's all weird. But for others of you who've maybe been doing something like this for a long time, you'll also realize that the world around you has changed a little bit. Like that which used to be very common, coming to church on a Sunday morning, is sort of become uncommon. So I think we're not living in Jerusalem anymore. We're living kind of in what I would describe in Bible words as Corinth and Ephesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, I want to share with you a story that I think will help you on this. And let me give you a little backdrop. Uh, when this story happened is that uh, basically the church, Jesus had lived his life on earth, spent three years, and then he was uh, uh, crucified. Uh, the Bible says he laid in a tomb. Then he was raised to life, and he appeared to more than 500 people alive. And I know that's kind of an intense idea, but that's the truth of what the Bible declares and what people said. Uh, more than 500 people had exposure to Jesus Christ, who was dead and now was alive. And then ultimately, he was taken up into heaven, but he said to his disciples, look, stay here. Stay in Jerusalem. Stay in that place where I've led you and where I've taught you. Stay in that place until you receive power. So in Acts chapter 1, the disciples do exactly what Jesus said to them, and they stay in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, what happens is God brings power into their life through the Holy Spirit. And if you read Acts 2, they have this amazing power experience. So Acts 1 is staying, Acts 2 is power, and then Acts 3 happens. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 3, you turn it in your Bible app on your phone, or we'll put it up on the screen for you. Acts chapter 3, uh, first several verses, this is a story with Peter and John, two of the key leaders in the New Testament church. This is what it says. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. First of all, I love that. They had this regular pattern of prayer. They were going up to the regular time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. 
So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Let me stop right there and make sure you have the context. It bothers me when we read Bible stories and we kind of go like, oh, that's kind of interesting. That was Bible times. Well, I want to make sure that you get this story really clearly in your head. Peter and John were two leaders in the early church, and they went at 3 o'clock in the afternoon like was their custom. They always went to prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So you know what you do on Sunday mornings, hopefully most of the time. You drive your car. You get the kids ready. Anybody break a shoelace this morning as you're getting the kids ready? Okay, that's why you like Velcro. Anybody spill any milk or orange juice this morning on your way to school? Okay, that's Sunday morning. It's torture, especially if you're bringing kids. I mean, it's, it's the hardest day of the week. It just happens. So you know what you did on the way to church. You said, I will not be stressed. I will not be stressed. I will not be stressed. And you said, look, I'm going to church. This is a happy time. I'm going to talk to people. It's going to be great. And so you drove along the way to church and you got into the parking lot and you parked your car and you had a space and you got out and you came in and you dropped your kids off and you had the donut and the coffee. I saw that great church thing. Okay, so you had your donut and your coffee. It was awesome. And then you came in and and they finally opened the doors and you came and found your place. Now, you know what your place is, right? It's the seat that you sit in every single week. Now, it doesn't have your name on it. It's not technically or legally your place, but you feel emotionally as though it's your place. Anybody here with me? Do you feel like you have your place in church? Okay. And some of you are okay. Like, if I can't sit in that place, it has to be one over or two over, it's okay. But if you have your place, you know the section of the building in which you sit, right? I mean, every single week you come here, this is where you sit because it's the right thing. It's either the easy out or it, you know, whatever it is that you want. Come on. I know that's how we are. So anyway... Um, I want you to imagine this. Today's different than any other day, except in this story it wasn't. Because what happened is, as Peter and John got ready to go to church, temple, and as they came into the church building, they had had an experience in Acts chapter 2 that was unbelievable. In Acts 1, they stayed just like Jesus told them to. In Acts 2, they had an experience with God that was amazing. And in Acts 3, they go to church like they normally do. Three o'clock in the afternoon, they had afternoon prayers. They go to the church, and on the way to the church, this is what they see. They see a lame and crippled guy who'd been crippled since birth. And every single day, people carry this guy, and they put him to the front entrance to the door. Now, I want you to think about this. You're coming into church today. You broke the shoelaces. The milk spilled. The orange juice spilled. Whatever. You got in the car. You got in the parking lot. You know what you got to do, right? You got to take your kids, drop them off in the classroom. You got to get your coffee and donut. And you got to sit in your place in church. And when that begins to unfold and you get your kids out of the car and you walk into the door, there's a guy who's crippled at the front door. And he's got a little basket in front of him. And you've seen him every single time you've ever come to church. And what he says is the same thing he says every week. He says, look, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. Because you know what? The people who took care of that guy placed that guy at the door to the church every single day because they knew if he could get enough money, then he could help provide for his own care. He was a professional beggar because being a professional beggar is what he had to do to help pay for his care. Now, a quick question. What do you do when you walk by the guy? If you're like me, it's some combination of I walk by the guy and go, oh, isn't that sad? Or maybe I walk by the guy and go, well, I'll give a little bit. That's the scene. Don't think these are Bible people. Don't think this is like, oh my goodness, I could never have it. This is the everyday reality. And this is what happens with Peter and John. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, 
He helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Got to stop you there. I want you to imagine the situation. You're the man on the ground. Every single day you come to beg. Every single day you hold out your basket. You say, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. You're just hoping and trusting that you'll hear some of those coins hitting the bottom of your basket. You just hope and trust and pray that somebody will have compassion on you because then the people who brought you there in the morning can at least have something for their kind and compassionate care of you every day. So what happens when Peter and John come by is say, look, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give to you. The man was expecting something. He occasionally got something from people. What Peter and John said was such as I have give I to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he reached out his hand and he grabbed it. Now I want you to know this. Several times that guy had not received a coin in his basket, but instead he'd been spat upon. Several times that guy had not received kindness and compassion, but what he'd received is insult and injury. So when Peter said, such as I have, give I to you in the name of Jesus, rise up, and he grabbed his hand, I want you to think about what you would do if you were the man begging by the temple gates. What would you do when the guy reaches out for your hand? How would it feel like to grab that hand? How would it feel like to have that moment where you reach out and grab his hand? He says, rise up and walk. The Bible story records that the guy reached out. He grabbed their hand. He rose up. His ankles were strengthened immediately. And he began to walk and he began to leap and he began to jump up and down. He said, and he started giving praises to God. It's interesting. He didn't give praises to Peter and John. He didn't go like, these guys are awesome. He said, he started giving praises to God. Now you're in the temple courts. You're in the lobby of the church. You're seeing the same thing. How do you respond? Well, this is what happened. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The people were blown away by Jesus. Now the easiest thing in the world is to read a story like that and go, gosh, Bible times are so cool. If I would have been back there, man, I would have been totally into that. I would have been one of the ones waving a sign going, Jesus is awesome. Jesus rocks. Jesus always. Jesus number one. You know, I would have done that. But I don't live in Bible times. I live in 2016. And you got the dueling news stations. And you got the stuff on the radio and the satellite. And you got, what does this have to do with my life? Well, I want to share some things this morning that I think have to do with our everyday life. Life, And I want to start by talking to you about a lie that I think exists in our world. And this lie is pervasive. You hear it every day. In fact, we hear it so much we don't even realize that we're hearing it. Here's the lie. And that is that change happens from the outside in. Many of us have bought this lie that change happens from the outside in. We go like, okay, man, if I could just if I could drive this certain car... If I could have this job, if I could make this level of income, if I could live in this house, if I could wear these certain kind of clothes, then I would, my life would change and it would change forever. That is a lie and a deception that exists in our culture. And it's got so many of us focusing from the outside in. And you know what? I think even this guy had to deal with it. Like once he was able to rise up and walk, the idea was, well, my whole life has changed because the outside has changed. But I really believe that's a deception. Instead of trying to change the world from the outside in, I think there's something that God wants us to hear this morning that's much more powerful. 
and much more lasting, and that is this, that godly transformation happens from the inside out. Godly transformation happens from the inside out. I think that's something that's lasting. It's not a new car, it's not a career, it's not a level of income, it's not a house, it's not a certain kind of clothing, but godly transformation happens from the inside out. I really believe that that's a powerful truth. I want to tell you one other quick story. There was a time when Jesus was uh, in a little bit of a debate. People were coming to Jesus, and you know it's important to know how Jesus handled these things. So what happened, quite frankly, is um, he had a group of Republicans who tried to trip him up. And they asked him a bunch of really certain kind of questions, and Jesus didn't get tripped up by the Republicans. So then the Democrats came, and you, you probably haven't seen Republican and Democrat in the Bible, but it was basically Pharisees and Sadducees. So this is the second round of question. It's in Matthew chapter 22. It says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that's what it's all about. What does it mean for God to have the power to change you on the inside so that you can then be part of changing the world all over? Your internal world, your everyday world, and the world around you. I'll tell you one more story, and then I'm going to lift up some principles. I was 22 or 23 years of age. I'm not proud about this moment. I don't know if anything ever happened in your life that you're not proud of in your teen years or early 20s, but I was 22, 23. I'm not really proud of this moment. It did happen. I'm not exaggerating it. What happened was I decided with a buddy to go snorkeling. We lived up in Ventura County, California, or down in Ventura County, California, and uh, we're along the coast, and we decided to go snorkeling one day out near Malibu or Zuma Beach. And so uh, we decided to go snorkeling. We had uh, swim fins. We had the, the little snorkel and uh, mask and everything. It was going to be awesome. There's kelp beds out along Zuma. We thought this was going to be a great experience. Doesn't that sound like some two 22-year-olds? Because that's what we did. We decided to go snorkeling. On the way, we decided it'd be really good to get some snacks. So uh, I consumed, I think it was somewhere around a quart of orange juice and about four glazed donuts. So at 22, 23, that seemed like a really good idea. We're going to go snorkeling. So we, we get our snorkels and our fins. We have the glazed Four glazed donuts and the orange juice. I'm not proud of this. But anyway, so we we did that and we got into the water. We swam out to the kelp beds and it was amazing. Beautiful fish, amazing kelp. Like what you see on the surface looks kind of messy and ugly. Underneath, it was just really powerful and poetic. As we began to swim out there, there was no real riptide or anything. But the the waves are coming in like that. And all of a sudden, I'm out there swimming around. And I'd had, uh, did I mention the orange juice and four glazed donuts? Okay, so I had the orange juice and four glazed donuts. And while I'm out there, like maybe 15, 20 minutes later, I'm swimming. And the, the water's going like this. Now, I don't want to make anybody sick, but the water's going like this. I'm going up and down and up and down and up and down. And all of a sudden, what happened is I remembered exactly what I'd eaten which was, and drank, which was about a quarter of orange juice and four glazed donuts, okay? And so while that's happening, I'm going up and down and up and down. All of a sudden, my stomach is becoming a giant washing machine. And I'm beginning to think, this is not good. This is not good. And so I began to have this alert, which was great because at 22, I was highly alert. I began to have this alert in my mind, like, get out of the water. So I turned and began to swim towards the shore. When my buddy was still over his, I don't think he had four glazed donuts. So I began to swim towards the shore. And as I was swimming towards the shore, I'm thinking, this is bad. This is bad. The tide's coming out and I'm fighting against the tide. and The water's going up and down like this. And as I go and I keep going, all of a sudden, I not only remembered 
what I had for breakfast, but I got to see it. So I just won't say anything much more to you. So anyway, so I began to swim. Finally got into the shore, and I laid on the shore and had this all-encompassing experience. My mind, my body, my emotions, my spirit were all focused on the fact that I had just survived the quart of orange juice, the four glazed donuts, and the water going up and down like this. It was an all-encompassing experience. So here's what I want to say to you. If you have an encounter with God, if you have an experience of connecting with the living Christ, it is an all-encompassing experience. And tragically, the reason why many of us never get to experience the power of God to change our lives is because we haven't experienced what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Many of us have only had an experience of God. We've had, as it were, kind of like $3 worth of God. Enough to know that God is near us, but not enough of God to have our lives changed. Now, I was born and raised in church. I didn't tell you my whole story, but basically I was born and raised in church. I was born on a Wednesday, was in church on Sunday. I grew up in a Baptist minister's home. Between the ages of zero and 16, I had to go to Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, and Wednesday night church. That's just the way I grew up. I was never allowed to miss church. This is not a speaker's exaggeration or what pastors do. Not that your pastor ever does this, but some pastors will exaggerate. Uh, This is not a pastor's exaggeration. I have been to church with mumps, mumps, measles, cold, fever, flu, and chicken pox. My parents literally would take me to church under all those situations. People tell me their stories all the time. Go, oh, I had a rough life. I say, look, you had nothing on me. I had a drug problem as a kid. I had a drug problem as a kid because I was drugged to church every week. that's, That's the reality of my life. But here's the deal. A lot of us have had a church exposure to Jesus. We've had a little slice of that, but we've never had a fully encompassing encounter with God. So I want to say a couple things about us being changed before we change the world. Just a couple quick things. First of all, you don't get to Acts chapter 3. You don't get to experience the power of God and the touch of God until you live through Acts 1 and Acts 2. In Acts 1, they stayed where Jesus told them to stay. And in Acts 2, they had an encounter with a living Christ. They had an experience of the power of God. And for some of us here today, before you know that Jesus is real, before you have that experience with him, there's literally nothing else that you have to offer the world around you. Until you have that experience with Jesus, where you know that he's real and not just a church slogan, you really don't have much to offer to the world. So Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you can only do all things through Christ who strengthens you. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Privileged to have my wife Pam here with us uh, today. And on our wedding invitations uh, almost 37 years ago, we put 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. I really believe this, that you cannot give what you have not received. And one of the reasons that we struggle so much feeling like we're kind of in alien territory and feeling like we don't know exactly what it is that God wants us to do and how do we deal with a world where we're swimming upstream in what seems like a downstream world is we don't have to offer the world. You cannot give what you have not received. I really believe this, that what you receive, you can then release. But you cannot release what you have not received. So I really believe that God wants to change the world. I believe that God wants us to come to people who are lame and crippled and struggling and battered and broken and bruised. And he wants us to give hope. 
but we can't give hope if we haven't first received it ourselves. So I've been on this journey the last several years kind of thinking about what it means to be in the presence of God. And I developed this idea of kind of a presence ecosystem. See if this makes sense to you. There's several factors in it. First of all, you start with the presence of God. And I think everything begins and ends there. The presence of God. I'm on a one-person mission, by the way, to attack the notion of sacred and secular. I don't know how I became a college president. don't know exactly why I became a college president, except for this. I know that God wants me to speak to the church and to education and to the business and governmental spheres of life and say to people that there's no such thing as sacred and secular. See, tragically, many of us have bought the notion that once we come into church, this is sacred space. Maybe you go to your home church and that's sacred space. And that is, by the way. But then we've bought the lie. We've bought the lie that when I'm changing diapers or taking out the trash or when I'm doing the lawn or when I'm at my work or when I'm walking in the neighborhood or I'm at the gym, that that's secular. Can I just tell you that's a deception? Did you know that all of life is sacred? That God is present in every dimension of life. And so we first have to begin with an understanding of his presence. A saint from old said this, the best thing that followers of Jesus could do would be to practice his presence. Years ago, some of us asked the question, what would Jesus do? That's a great question. That's a starting spot. But you know something I think is more powerful? If every moment in time we said, I am Jesus in this place, what should I do? What should I do being the representative of Jesus? If you know Jesus, you have a relationship with him, he is present with you every moment of the day. So it begins and ends with his presence. His presence is in your prayer room. His presence is when you spend that little time in the morning reading your Bible and praying. His presence is with you when you're fighting traffic to get to work. His presence is with you when you're getting the kids to school. His presence is with you when you're doing the everyday stuff of life. His presence is everything. Because when you're present with him, what it does is it brings about dependence. The more you spend in the time in the presence of God, you know that you have dependence upon him. You say, look, God, you're everything. You're everything in my life. You're everything. And once you have that sense of dependence, then it brings a sense of abundance. Because what you know is that no matter if you're struggling financially, if you just got bad news medically, if you're grappling with a relational issue, you have the abundance of God's presence and you have ultimately the abundance of his supply. You're not ultimately depending just on yourself. You recognize that you are with him and you're completely dependent upon him. That's an abundance that's amazing and it brings joy. You know the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is based on external circumstances like a roller coaster. You can be totally happy and then totally depressed. But when you have joy, that comes from within. That's why the deception that change happens from the outside in is so dangerous. Because change, uh, that kind of view makes you focus on the outside. What God wants us to do is to focus on the source of joy inside. Then from joy comes great peace. Because you know that whatever the circumstances of your life are, that you can have amazing experience of his presence. I've had the privilege to uh, go across the world and be in Kenya, Africa, 10 separate times. And I've been in these very difficult, challenging spots walk through poverty, and I, I know we have poverty here in the U.S., but I'm talking about unimaginable poverty. I'm talking not clean water, not clean sewer, not food available. I'm talking people living in square footage that you and I wouldn't think was big enough for a closet. No exaggeration. And what I've been amazed by every single time I've gone is to see people who know Jesus and love Jesus in those situations, and to be honest, this is my thought, if I was in those situations, I might be inclined to raise my fist And look at God and go, where are you? How have you forgotten me? How come you're letting me live in these circumstances? And what I've been amazed by every single time I've gone to those situations is to find followers of Jesus 
who have hearts overflowing with gratitude when they're in circumstances that I might be tempted to raise my hand and curse God about. And I go, there's something going on there where they know something that I have yet to fully experience and understand. So joy and peace, and then ultimately it helps me know there's a difference between seed time and harvest. Let me close this this way, and then I want to pray over you. Every time I come to a church, I like to pray prayers of blessing. So one of the things I'm going to do as I pray over you is to say this to you. I believe God has an assignment for your life. I believe that this church's name is its identity. And I believe that you have a particular assignment where God's calling you to be brave and courageous. The whole concept of seed time and harvest is this. There are moments in our lives where God is calling us to sow seeds. And part of what happens in the sowing seeds is that we till the ground. Don't raise your hand to this, but how many of you know that life is not a straight line? How many of you know that life is sometimes zigzags and there are moments when we're up and we're on the pinnacle and then there are other times when we're down and we're in the pit. And if life was just a straight line and we'd go like, hey, it's all good and it's always good, then that'd be one thing. But the reality is, is that life is not all a straight line and it's not all the pinnacle. I love the notion that sometimes we wonder where God is in the midst of our pain. And the fact is, is that God whispers to us in our joy and he shouts to us in our pain. Those moments where you think that God is absent, he is not absent, he is present there. So seed time and harvest means this. I don't know what season you're in. Maybe the ground of your life is being tilled right now. Maybe seeds are being planted. Or maybe you're in that amazing season of harvest. And you know when you're in that season of harvest and everything is going awesome? That's because you've experienced the presence of God in your life. I've had the privilege recently to have some conversations with folks who are struggling with who God is and struggling where Jesus fits. And in my conversations with them, I had opportunity to just share gently and lovingly that Jesus is real, that he cares about their lives, they can be forgiven from their past, they can be free in their present, and they can have hope for the future. I believe that for each one of you. I don't know your names, I don't know your stories, but I know this. You're a part of a community that believes that Jesus is real, and it's really all about him. And you have a future set before you. So I don't know what your agenda or assignment is in life. I don't know if you're in seed time or if you're in harvest. But I know this. Everything begins and ends with the presence of God. Transformation that's lasting doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. And if you have an encounter with the living Christ, your life can be changed for all eternity. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? Nobody's going to do anything weird. Nobody's going to stand, touch up and grab you or anything like that. Just with your eyes closed. I just want to pray over you because I know we've had an experience this morning in worship. I know we've had an experience where we got to greet other people. Hopefully this morning as you've heard these stories, you said, man, there's something about God. There's something about God that's real. And again, I don't know where you are in the continuum. Maybe you're here right now and say, look, I, I just barely, barely know what I think about God and Jesus and the Bible and the church. But God brought you here. You're not here by accident. You're here for a reason. There's an assignment You came here for a purpose. So with your eyes closed, let me just ask you, would you be willing to say, you know what? I want to live a life. I want to live a life that has a sense of assignment upon me. I want to live a life that helps me to connect with the world around me. I want to live a life of faith. I want to be a person like that. So I don't know if you're that beggar by the the temple gate, or if you're Peter and John, but either way, if if you're the beggar by the gate, maybe you need to say, I'm gonna take that step today. When somebody reaches out to me and says something about Jesus, I'm gonna grab hold. 
Today, what I want you to hear about Jesus, if that's where you are, is that Jesus loves you. He cares deeply for you. Jesus is God come in the flesh. He came to let you know that you could be forgiven of your past, you could be free in your present, and you could be full of hope in your future. Or maybe you're at that point where you go like, I don't know, I've never been that bold to reach out and just really share Jesus with somebody. Well, I hope if you've had a real experience with Jesus that you'd be willing to get to that place. So with your eyes still closed. Holy Spirit, I thank you for being in this room right now and I thank you for the men and women here and I thank you for the work that you've done in their hearts and lives. God, I thank you that nobody's here by accident. Everybody's here at this moment in time is here because you brought them here. It's not just a little calendar filler, but it's actually an encounter. So I pray, God, in the worship and I pray in the, in the talk that what happened is that we had an encounter with you. Somewhere, some way, something was said that ultimately that's you knocking at the door of our heart. God, some of us are just beginning. And if that's the case, I pray that today we'd say, Jesus, if you're real, Jesus, if you really are alive and if you're real, would you come and touch my life today? Would you help me be forgiven of the stuff I've done in the past, stuff I've thought, stuff I've said? And would you be real to me? Would you forgive me? God, I wanna, I wanna be free. I wanna have a future that's full of hope. And maybe you're in the room today and you kind of know Jesus is real and you've sort of been doing your deal for a while, but Jesus has never been really real, never been powerfully life-changing, dramatic, transformation real and maybe this is the day where you say I'm going to stop kind of keeping Jesus on the margins of my life and I'm going to walk with him in the center of my life his presence is going to be over everything I do I pray that you'd enter into that experience of presence and dependence and abundance and joy and peace and seed time and harvest Holy Spirit of God I pray that you would do your work touch the lives of those gathered here. And I pray for Brave Church that this might be yet another step in the journey that might unleash amazing miracles. This is a church where miracles happen as we meet face to face with Jesus. Amen.